0: Hopefully that's okay with everyone. Oh, there's David. Hi, David. Okay, yeah, go ahead. i like to work here. So you, we're, good to go. we're good to go. Okay. All right. Very good. Thanks very much. Thanks. Oh, sorry. All right. So, those of you joining us online, I just heard from our tech specialist. Uh, thanks to him. He caught us before we did an entire session on mute. I had just announced the two books, and uh, the election process went very well. I got all of your votes in person, via email, via our website, and uh, the church secretary was giving me names and votes. We got them all in, and it was actually a tie. These two books, the first one by Chrysostom on marriage and family life, and the second, uh, Wolf Mueller, Has American Christianity Failed?, The these two books won by a long shot over the other two texts. So, and since that was a dead tie, I thought what we'd do is we'd read both of them. There are advantages to these texts. For example, these that you can see if you can see them, and no doubt our tech people will drop some links places to these are both the editions you want online. So this is exactly what they look like. Those of you who are present, I mean when you go to Amazon or wherever to purchase these, the cover looks the same. They're the same editions. So, uh, and if if any of you who are present here want to take a look at this, that's fine. If any of you watching online are confused, who want to, you know, give me a phone call or drop me an email, that's fine too. Readily available. Because it is shorter, I thought we would do the John Chrysostom book first. So we'll do that first. We'll do uh, the Wolf Mueller book next. It should be it should be delightful. It should be wonderful reading. I'm very excited about both of those texts. So let me know if you have any questions. Um, for those of you who are thinking about just you know not finishing, you haven't been tracking scare with us. You haven't you know you're not interested in that, but you're interested in picking up with one of these texts. My guess is that we've got this week and next week with Scare, um, maybe a third week, but we'll have to see how it goes. So uh, that'll give you just a little bit of a, a timeline there. I would make your purchases soon just so you can make sure that you have a copy and, and have that available and taking a look. All right. Any questions on that? Any, uh, anything I missed? All right. So. Let's pick back up then in the scare book, and there we are talking about resurrection, in the chapter on resurrection. And of course, we have been lamenting all of those who deny the resurrection. We've been lamenting this uh, move in oh gosh, so largely in German Lutheran scholarship. Uh, Where of the last few centuries where the resurrection has been denied and we've entered into this demythologization project where anything that our modern sensibilities can't tolerate is just presumed to be a myth and stricken from the scriptures. So, in contrast to this, of course, Scare has been leading us in the way of the New Testament documents themselves in the way of historical evidence for the earliest Christian community's confession in a literal, physical resurrection. When you look at the earliest texts, thinking of the Bible as history, when you look at the earliest New Testament texts, they attest to the literal, physical resurrection of Christ. So if this was a myth that developed over time, as we're being told, uh, this evidence stands against that. As does of course, Jesus' own preaching and teaching. Now, we left off on page 92, the first full paragraph, which is about halfway down the page. Scare writes, as part of his predictions of his own death, Jesus includes his resurrection. And there you have a whole slew uh, from, uh, of quotations from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus is God's servant to carry out his will, and he expects that God will find his cause just and vindicate him through the resurrection. And here you have a beautiful aspect, I'll just point it out in passing, of the humanity of Jesus, of the human nature of Jesus, which in fact has faith, faith par excellence, so faith that his father will see that his cause is just and will vindicate him through the resurrection. Scare continues. In John's Gospel, Jesus is not only the one who actively offers up his life, but also the one who has the authority to take that life up again. Reference to John 10.18, where Christ, very early on in his ministry, is aware of and predicts his death and resurrection. Scare continues, others may take his life from him, but he is able to take it back again. A proper Trinitarian theology finds little difficulty in ascribing the resurrection to both the Father and then to Jesus himself. The Synoptic Gospels, which are, again, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, which are more likely to see Jesus as the one raised up by God, following the Old Testament teaching that God will vindicate his Messiah, view Jesus as the true Israel, the suffering servant, who faithfully carries out God's will in the midst of adversities and is rewarded by the resurrection for his loyalty. In Isaiah, the suffering servant is quote cut off from the land of the living end quote that's Isaiah fifty three eight and quote makes his soul an offering for sin end quote Isaiah fifty three ten. Still, he survives to see his posterity. Again, Isaiah fifty three ten and God gives him a portion with the great Isaiah 53 12. What's the point? The point is that Isaiah 53 not only speaks of the atoning death of Christ on the cross, it also speaks of his resurrection. You remember this uh, from, from the quotation we were working with last week from Paul. If you flip back to page 91 you'll see this quotation from Paul in the first full paragraph about four lines down Scare says Paul places the resurrection along with Jesus death as the basic foundation of Christianity and here's the quotation from 1 Corinthians 15 3 through 4 Paul writes for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures now remember at this time there's no such thing as a New Testament as a collection of documents there is only an Old Testament as a collection of documents so to say that Christ died for our sins and according from the script in accordance with the scriptures is to say in accordance with the Old Testament this is what the Old Testament teaches Paul continues that he was buried that he was raised from the dead in accordance with the Scriptures. Again, in accordance with the Old Testament. So it is the Old Testament itself that teaches Christ's death for our sins and His vindication by God and thus His resurrection and one example that Scare is pointing out for us is here in Isaiah 53 we see that he is cut off from the land of the living reference of course to his death on the cross making his soul an offering for sin reference to his atoning death on the cross that's Isaiah 53.8 and 53.10 and then Scare points out he still survives to see his posterity so even though he is dead he is alive Isaiah 53.10. And God gives him a portion with the great, Isaiah 53.12. So, all references to his rising again, according to the Old Testament. All right. Third line from the top of 93. Even though Jesus claims that God will raise him up, his enemies understand that he is the one who himself brings it about as they accuse him, saying, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise again. The word is God made flesh, and he chooses when he shall manifest his glory. As God's temple, he shall be raised from the dead. Apart from Jesus' own explicit references to his resurrection, it was part of the ordinary fiber of his preaching. He says, No sign shall be given except the sign of Jonah. That is, as Jonah sojourned in the belly of the great fish for three days, so also the Son of Man will be in the earth's belly for three days. Reference to Matthew twelve forty. So uh, here would be, according to Jesus' own exegesis, Jonah being swallowed by a fish isn't merely about Jonah; it's chiefly about him. As the fish swallows Jonah and spits him out three days later, so will the Son of Man be swallowed up by the earth and spat forth three days later. That tells us uh, that tells us two things again. Um, that tells us Scare's scarce chief point that Jesus' preaching of the resurrection was just simply part of, of his regular preaching and teaching. Uh, and, then, and then the second, that again the Old Testament speaks of his resurrection. Okay. Scare continues. Jesus... The son of the owner of the vineyard, who is killed by the tenants, Matthew 21, 33 through 41, and is also the son now alive for whom the king gives a wedding banquet, Matthew 22, 1 through 3. So again, if you read, if you read the parables of Jesus, you can see the parable of uh, the son being killed followed shortly after by the Son being very much alive and holding a banquet, which of course, just very simply, would be Christ's death on the cross, Christ's resurrection, and the Eucharist, as the Christian community experiences it. The wedding feast of the Lamb, which is the wedding feast, and yet is a foretaste of that feast to come. Both are true. All right, so Scare continues the implication, again, of Jesus teaching the, the parable of the wicked tenants where he, the son is died, has died and then followed by the parable of the wedding banquet where the son is alive, Scarce says the implication is that the resurrection has intervened. Jesus' awareness of his resurrection is already contained in his self understanding as the Son of Man who will return on the last day to judge all men. Boy, we heard that in the text just this morning in our Thursday service, also from the, uh, the, the lectionary and readings in the, the Treasury of Daily Prayer, where the high priest is, you know, there's this mock trial, and the high priest and, and everyone are, are trying to judge based on these false accusations. And Jesus, knowing full well, that this is a kangaroo court, knowing full well he's going to be found guilty, knowing full well that he's going to be sentenced to death, says to him, from now on you will see the Son of Man in glory. Right? So Jesus knows that even though he's going to die, he's going to be alive. All right, so we can find many references in the teaching of Jesus himself. So much so, and so interwoven in with the rest of his teaching, that if you don't accept that, you're not going to end up with much of Jesus' teaching or not much of Jesus' preaching left at all. If you have to say, well, this is all his discourse on the sign of Jonah Jonah was added in later by the community, isn't authentic to Jesus, or so forth. Then you've got to start tearing more and more pages out of Scripture in order to keep your theory, right? Until basically, you're not going to be left with anything. Yes, sir. Uh,
1: the, the impression I get is that the people that don't believe in the resurrection, then when they go back to the Old Testament, I'm speak, mostly I'm looking at what happened to Eli, Elijah, and uh, Naaman, the mm-hmm. general. Mm-hmm. When he comes, he gets a message. You know, gives that letter to him to come and. Heal him from leprosy, and then the king is screaming, Well, I don't make I don't give life and take life away, only God does. So, how it's almost like they that part of scripture is left out when even the king knew that God gives and takes life. Mm,
0: mm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, references all throughout the Old Testament, of course, you mentioned. You mentioned Elijah and another would be Enoch. Yeah. And those two, why those two are so important is because we have been told by scholarship, air quotes, scholarship, that the Old Testament people, the Hebrew way of thinking, did not involve the resurrection of the body. Well, that, that's where these texts shine forth as so important, because in their bodies, they are taken up into heaven and dwell there, Elijah and Enoch. And so it, there's, there's two points of evidence that sort of contradict. I mean, we, we have to be very skeptical when people th- talk about things like the Hebrew mind works like this, or the Greek mind works like that. Uh, this was very popular in the, in the 20th century, and it has basically been thoroughly debunked, but many scholars have not caught up to speed yet. Yeah. All right, any other thoughts we have, or are we ready to keep going? All right, let's uh, let's keep going. All the evangelists, page 93, all the evangelists understand the resurrection of Jesus to be an integral part of his own proclamation. The epistles, which make his resurrection part of the apostolic confession and proclamation, are not inventing a new article of faith but one which they have taken over from Christ's preaching and the event itself. The evangelists include the resurrection at the conclusion of their accounts, with Luke adding the report of the ascension. They see the resurrection as a vindication for God and Jesus, but with each evangelist presenting the resurrection in slightly different ways. Dogmatic theology concerns itself not so much with the question of the differing details of the resurrection accounts but seeks to identify the theological issues which the evangelists addressed by means of their differing accounts. So in one sense when you look at the differing accounts and this is true for any of the gospels regarding any of the subject Matter that they happen to, you know, overlap on in terms of covering. In the first place, very basically, you have the old proverb of the elephant in the in the bottom of the pit, and every man reaching out and touching a part of the elephant and, and describing what it is. You know, someone grabs a grabs the the leg and says, "Oh, it's it's very muscular and and very huge and and very strong." Someone else, you know, is, is touching the trunk and says it, it's soft and it moves all about. And someone else is grabbing a tusk or an ear and so forth, okay? And everybody's giving a different description of this one thing. All right, but there's more to it than that. There's more to it than that. Uh, in many ways, when the evangelists are writing their accounts, The differences in detail are there to make a point, a theological point, and that's what Scare's getting at. You know, if you're sitting down to write uh, good literature and you know that someone's covered the material before, you're not gonna cover the exact same material and make it all uniform, that's not the point. The point is to take what they said and amplify certain points in order to get a different point across or add certain details or slip in other information. It's not even necessary for you to to fill out a a timeline as such. That's not your intention as an author. Your intention as an author is to make a different theological point. So we have, have these four different artistic theological testimonies and accounts, real and true eyewitness testimony accounts, but flavored and colored to bring out and draw out different theological truths. And that's what Scare is saying here. And it's, it's the task of dogmatic theology to recognize that this is why there are variations in the text. So let's get at those meanings. All right, bottom of 93, Matthew's account addresses the historical question of whether the resurrection really occurred against the assertion of the Jews that the body of Jesus had been stolen by the disciples. On the intervening Saturday, the Jews meet with Pilate to secure a guard for the tomb since they have understood his claim that he would be raised from the dead. After the resurrection has taken place, the Jews bribed the guards with silver to testify that the disciples stole the body while the guards were sleeping. Yeah, they moved that rock while the guards were there sleeping. Anyway, just how effective this slander was is unknown. Well, yeah. Except based on the size of Christianity today, not very effective. <laughs> But such testimony is internally self-contradictory, since sleeping witnesses are no witnesses at all. Right. If they're asleep at the tomb, how on earth do they know that it was the disciples who stole the body? Right? It was also known that the Jews had used (laughs) silver before in their payment to Judas and their purchase of the field of blood. Okay. So... The Jews using silver for uh, nefarious purposes, false and deceitful purposes, uh, there is already ample evidence for. Scare continues. So, I mean, we should say maybe thus far, Matthew. So, Scare continues. Unlike Matthew, Luke does not show the same apologetical concerns. But instead culminates his account of the resurrection with the revelation of who Jesus really is in the breaking of the bread with the Emmaus disciples. Jesus in his resurrection has taken up a new mode of existence in which he is not spatially confined. Uh, And I think that that reference Luke 24, 36 is... Um, when he disappears from their sight. Remember, he's revealed in the breaking of bread, and then he disappears. That's, he, is, he has a new mode of existence. He is not spatially confined. John follows Luke in emphasizing Christ's new mode of existence after his resurrection. The resurrection signifies that the humiliation has given way to the exaltation, Mary is not permitted to hold Christ. Reference to John twenty seventeen. Remember where she says Rabboni and falls at his feet. The time of his humiliation has ended, and now the divine nature of Christ is unrestrictedly revealed in and through the human nature. References to Romans one four and also Philippians chapter two verses nine through eleven. Scare continues, John does not address the question answered by Matthew about whether the body of Jesus was stolen, but assumes that it was resurrected. But like Luke, he is concerned about the nature of the resurrected body. Though the resurrected body is not bound by the ordinary rules of space, Jesus invited Thomas to put his hands in the wounds, and he ate in front of his disciples. The resurrection is not a cessation of the incarnation, but its continuation. All right, so we've done Matthew, we've done Luke, we've done John with their different emphases regarding the resurrection. And it looks like now we'll touch on Mark with this With this. Paragraph the shorter ending of Mark, um, yeah, so 16, 1 through nine, which many it's a controversial point today, maybe especially in conservative LCMS circles, uh, as to where the proper ending of Mark is. If you wanna, if you have your Bible, I'm sorry, I just grabbed a a New King or yeah, New King James. We can just take a look at that so you can, you can see. And many of you are already familiar with this, no doubt. But Mark, if you take the shorter ending, it really, it really ends quite starkly. And I would, I would kind of describe it as artistically. It's, we're not going to get into all of the debates. Uh, off the top of my head, I'd only be able to give you a few data points, anyway. So we won't we won't try to do justice to this. But just so that you're aware of what scare means when he talks about the shorter ending of Mark. So some scholars think, and they think b- primarily because of ch- a change in style and language, um, that it is possible that uh, that. Mark ends at verse 9 of chapter 16. So just, just looking at, um, I mean, if you just look at verse 5, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now that's it. I don't know why Scare has nine, because that's the ending. That's the ending right there, Um, which is, which is, if you know Mark's, if you know Mark's gospel, I I think is a beautiful, poignant way to end it because it's short, it's terse, and it is, uh, it is unnerving. It is unnerving. That's kind of one of the stylistic themes of Mark's gospel is it, it, very much leaves you star, leaves you asking, like not, not asking is this true, but if this is true, what does this mean? And fear is exactly the right reaction. Fear is exactly the right reaction. We, we base our, uh, in this fallen world, we base our, uh, we base everything on the power of death. I mean, why, why would anyone obey the law? Why would anyone do what they're told? I mean, the only ultimate recourse you have is death. Of course, you've got many different steps along the way, finding and imprisoning and everything else along the way, but your final and ultimate foundation of power, your final and ultimate foundation of, of civilization, of law and order, of everything you want to try to build here in this earthly fallen world is ultimately might, and uh, might that threatens or... or uh, hands over death. Okay, so now, if this is the ending, Mark's gospel remains uh, like terrifying because the foundation. Because not only is Jesus raised, and what does this mean? But the foundations of the power structure of the earth as we know it have been stripped away. There's something deeper. There's something stronger. Nothing of of what the world has organized itself on stands any longer, and so. So to walk away and be afraid and have it end is really quite poignant. Of course, then you have the question of of why why the longer ending and where does it come from, etc., etc. And there's there's many different theories uh, in, in terms of uh, its origin or how it comes in or what, But anyway, I think it's all quite aside from the point. What follows in chapter nine through uh, through twenty can be confirmed by scripture verses in. throughout the Old uh, excuse me throughout the New Testament so whether or not it's original is moot does it carry the same weight and authority as the rest of the text absolutely who's denying that so that's really the fundamental point Um, there are very good reasons I'll just simply say in passing there are very good reasons to think that this is authentic to Mark um, or perhaps added by Peter or someone like that another disciple uh if if there was anything scandalous about this you'd have a you'd have a record of it you'd have a record of it in the church like hey this guy tried to change mark <laughs> 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 but there's nothing like that okay so whatever the explanation is and, and again I I simply just take it in a childlike way the way the Luther's small catechism I just take it as scripture so I that's that's where, I, that's where your pastor lands on it, where I individually land on it. It's scripture. Okay? If, I, if someone's really going to you know, put my feet to the fire, I'll say Mark wrote it. Great. Okay? But anyway, there is a longer and a shorter version. The longer version, look at this, the longer version uh, has okay, the resurrection, and then he, he rises and, and shows himself to Mary Magdalene, then you've got the two disciples as they walk in the country. Okay? And then you've got Mark's version of the Great, of the great Commission, including that beautiful, that beautiful statement, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, connecting the Great, connection, uh, the great Commission with both teaching and baptism. And then uh, ends, ends with the Ascension. Uh, Christ being received up into heaven. Okay, so now that you're just a little bit familiar with the shorter and longer version of Mark, and if you have an ESV study Bible, a Lutheran study Bible, it'll tell you all this and more. All right, so what's Scare saying? Back to page 94. The shorter ending of Mark, 16, 1 through 9. Again, I don't know why he has 9. I think it's commonly assumed that the shorter ending ends at 8. It would have to be. The shorter ending of Mark has no appearances of the resurrected Jesus. Right, because as we just saw, it's simply the angel saying, he's not here. Mm -hmm. Mark makes mention of the empty tomb and the angel's command from Jesus that he will meet Peter and the other apostles later in Galilee. The Gospels all testify that the tomb of Jesus is empty, because he has been resurrected. Three of the Gospels and the longer ending of Mark contain the appearances of Jesus. Though the Pauline epistles see the resurrection... Okay, so what are we doing? We're moving on from the Gospels to the Pauline epistles. Though the Pauline epistles see the resurrection of Jesus as an essential article of faith, they do not contain reports of the resurrection itself, with the exception of 1 Corinthians 15, 5-8, where Paul lists the eyewitnesses to the resurrection. In the, sixth, in the six categories, Peter, the Twelve, the 500 Brethren, James, all the Apostles, and finally Paul himself, Jesus is described as, quote-unquote, appearing. The term is used of those who come from the heavenly realm and are seen on earth, as was the case with Moses and Elijah in the Transfiguration. At the moment of his resurrection, Jesus' soul and body were united and he was seen as glorified in the realm of, quote-unquote, invisible things, using the creedal language. During the 40 days from the moment of glorification at the resurrection until his ascension, Jesus, quote-unquote, appeared on earth very much in the sense that Moses and Elijah did at the transfiguration which is a fascinating idea because uh, here's scare and without doing the homework behind it um, we know that Elijah went up to heaven in his body not so with the body of Moses it was buried in place where only God knew because God buried it and then do you remember I think it's in Jude where there's this fight between Michael and the devil over his body why were they looking for his body why did they want his body the transfiguration was going to happen. Moses appears in the transfiguration in his body. So, uh, Scare, Scare uh, alludes to that here quite subtly, but nonetheless. So, he Jesus appears very much in the sense that Moses and Elijah did at the transfiguration. All right, are we doing okay? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tracking along? All right. So, during this period, he Jesus did not reassume an ordinary earthly existence, and this is getting at uh, this is getting at articulating what is in the paragraph pretty much immediately parallel on the other page, where twice scare referenced a new mode of existence, a new mode of existence. When Jesus is raised from the dead, he doesn't say, "Okay, well I'm back. Time to build a house." You know, he doesn't, he doesn't set up an earthly life. He has a new mode of existence, a new relationship to the world. So, Scare writes, during this period, he did not reassume an earthly or an ordinary earthly existence. His walking, talking, and eating with his disciples were not done for his sake or as necessary parts of his existence, but to demonstrate to them that he was no longer dead. Really to demonstrate to them that that he was truly physically raised. I mean, that's this business about about him eating in front of them. Spirits don't eat. Have you ever seen a spirit try? (laughs) If a spirit tries to eat, first of all, they can't grab the food. But even if they did somehow grab it and pop it into their mouth, it just flies down the bottom. So Jesus isn't a spirit. He's not a spirit. Uh, he's, he's risen in his body and he's demonstrating this. I mean, same with allowing, allowing Thomas to put his hands, his fingers in his hands and his hand in his side. It's like Jesus could have just shown up in the middle of the upper room and said, here I am, don't touch me, but here I am. And instead he says, go ahead and touch. So all of these things that Jesus does uh, and scare highlights the walking, talking and eating are done uh, to prove to his disciples the literal bodily resurrection not out of some kind of necessity. Yes, sir? In that case, but Jesus, at the same time, is also feared because he could walk through
1: the doors, right? Because he doesn't need to knock to get in, to open the door to go in. He just showed up. He just walked through the doors.
0: Yeah, yeah, whether he walked through the doors or simply manifested and appeared in the middle. yeah, and Right, the bottom line is, is uh, and this harkens back to an earlier part of the text, where the divine nature can cause the human nature to do whatever it wants. It's, it's not any less human nature. Uh, it's simply the resurrected Christ manifests his power in glory. So, he can do with his human nature things a normal human nature couldn't do. Whether that's pass through doors or walls or whether that's just a pier in the middle of a locked room, the mechanism doesn't so much matter as the fact of it. And of course we, we kind of always chuckle because if you don't understand this part of Christology that on account of the divine nature, God can make the human do whatever it wants, then you're stuck with Calvinism where, you know, Jesus had to scurry up the side and maybe army roll into a win- <laughs> army roll through a window and uh, say hello, everyone. Here I am. You know, <laughs> that's what you're stuck with. If you if you limit yourself by the human body, what a horrible statement. God is limited by the nature of the human body. <laughs> uh, do you ever want to be in a position theologically where where God has very clearly said He could do something, and you're saying, no. It's impossible, it's impossible according to my philosophy. <laughs> That's, sorry to laugh, but if you don't laugh, you're going to cry. All right. Yes, yeah, so with his, uh, with his risen body comes a different mode of existence, a glorified mode of existence. And he's no longer eating or drinking or doing any of these other things out of any kind of necessity or any kind of hunger or need, but rather in order to prove and demonstrate Uh, to his disciples, that he is, in fact, risen. All right, four lines down from that first full paragraph on page 95. His resurrection does involve at least a resuscitation of a dead body, but it was more than this. That's so true, such an important point. It's not like he's raised from the dead and just returns to the status quo. He's raised from the dead and has a new mode of existence. The term resuscitation is inadequate to explain what the resurrection involves, since the ordinary bodily functions are no longer operative in the way they were before his death. Luther's distinction between the temporal and transient characteristics may be helpful. Here, quoting from Luther, Jesus now sits at the right hand of God and eats Drinks, sleeps, sorrows, suffers, or dies no more in eternity, just as will happen to us when we pass from this life into the other life. These are temporal and transient idiomata uh, characteristics, might be a fair translation. But the natural ones remain. For instance, that he has a body and soul, skin and hair, flesh and blood, marrow and bones, and all the limbs of an ordinary human. All right. So what we can glimpse here, and, and I think that this will make a little sense, what we can glimpse here in the resurrection of Jesus is what the resurrection of our bodies will be like as well. You know, if, you're, if you're in the new heavens and the new earth and you've been given eternal life and here you are in your body glorified and you're walking around in eternal life, are you worried about starving to death? You have eternal life. So are you worried about suddenly getting a heart attack? No. I mean, you've got eternal life. And so your body is going to work in different ways. It's going to be an entirely different mode of existence for us. It's still going to be us. It's still going to be our bodies. But it's going to be a completely different mode of existence. And so there's a parallel there. And indeed some overlap. The the chief difference, and significant, is Jesus is God. (laughs) we're not. Okay, so how much how much different his mode of existence and yet we will be glorified with him, united with him in such a way that there is very clear overlap. So, you know, theoretically, if you could if you could go up into heaven and you said I'm never going to eat again, you wouldn't become emaciated or die. If you said if you went up to heaven and you said I'm never going to sleep again, you wouldn't suffer sleep fatigue or die right? So that's the kind of thing we're talking about here and the kind of thing Luther's articulating. Make sense? All right. Very good. Scare continues. The resurrected body is what Paul calls the spiritual body. Yeah, and here's what it's worth a comment. What we do here in the West is we talk about spiritual things and material things as if those were opposites, as if those were two mutually exclusive categories. That's not the way the Bible speaks. It's not the way uh, the Holy Spirit speaks. Okay, So a spiritual body sounds to us like an oxymoron. It sounds like you can't have... If you have a spiritual body, then it by definition is not a material body. Okay? According to our kind of late Western way of thinking, at least on the ground level. All right, but the Bible doesn't view it that way. A spiritual body is a literal, physical body that is not bound to this mode of existence where if we, if we don't eat or we don't sleep, it goes very poorly for us. Right. Whereas raised in spiritual bodies, it's still physical, material bodies, but they're in a different spiritual mode of existence where if you never ate, never drank, never slept again, you would be fine wouldn't affect you in the least. So when we're talking about when we're talking about a spiritual body, that's what we're talking about, a different mode in which the physical body exists. Does that make sense? Kind of? Not really. <laughs> Sometimes that idea of the material and the spiritual, that uh, being mutually exclusive, is is so tied in our minds it takes a while for us to get over. Get over.
1: Yeah, a lot of that have to do with the Greeks the way they
0: looked at it? It does uh, maybe a specific subset uh, of that so Gnosticism is in the backdrop here of our distinction Gnosticism is uh, really has a speaking in generalities here Gnosticism has a very low view of material the very low view of the body the whole idea of salvation in Gnosticism is to escape the body the body is viewed as a prison oh this has wreaked such havoc this ancient non-christian religion this ancient heresy has wreaked so much havoc even on modern christian understanding it works itself into quote unquote christian hymnody and song and poetry particularly prevalent around funerals where you'll get these kind of sentiments expressed like you know grandpa is free, finally free from his body finally free from this prison, which is, could not be more unbiblical, could not be more Gnostic, following this false religion. You also get this idea of like, um, this idea of like, I am a pure spirit trapped here, and so my eternal destination is to leave this body, leave this physical world, and dwell as a spirit on a spiritual plane called heaven. Okay. That idea is so prevalent, so prevalent. I preached a sermon here at Faith. This was probably already eight or ten years ago. I preached a funeral sermon here at Faith. And, uh, and, and as soon as I was done, we have the pattern of, of uh, the pastor, just because of the logistics, will often usher the people out. As I was ushering the people out, a crowd of about 12 gathered around me and they weren't, they weren't rude, but they just said, you preached that, and I don't know who it was, but that Grandpa is going to rise in his body on the last day. And, and I said, yes. And they said, is that actually Christianity? <laughs> We've never heard these things before. I mean, this, these are one of the many moments I have had here in Southern California where I kind of want to, like, it's surreal. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's real or I'm dreaming. But yeah, it, Christians are so confounded on this point. We have gotten thoroughly indoctrinated with Gnosticism, this this ancient idea often overlapping with with Greek thought that uh, the material is bad and the spiritual is good and we all want to be free. So comes St. So comes Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.40 using the language of a spiritual body, which of course is a hand grenade to this whole system we've been describing. Uh, the body that is in fact material is raised and such that it is really a different mode of existence that's being intended, that's being meant when Paul says a spiritual body. Okay. Um, you, could say, you could say, in contrast, these earthly bodies will go into the grave and they will be raised as spiritual bodies. Again, the same material body raised, literally, physically raised. But one mode would be called earthly. The other mode, spiritual. You could use that distinction if you like. It's a heck of a lot more in keeping with St. Paul and First Corinthians 15 than this other stuff. Yes, sir? The phrase that
1: we normally use, glorified, which has a different connotation, that it's now holy instead of...
0: Yeah, when we're talking about the resurrected body... Yeah. Yeah, when we're talking about our resurrected bodies, we frequently do talk about them as being glorified. Yeah. Um, and what we mean by glorified really just to be precise about it, no more does sin have a place in us. And no more does death in all its preliminary forms have a place in us. So our bodies are not corrupted. You know, this is a fascinating thing. This is a lot of fun to think about. And I, and I especially love teasing my kids along these lines. I'm not sure they get it yet. But the idea of getting, of getting old, the idea of getting old, Once you reach a certain point, I mean, this is kind of fluid. It's kind of gray. Okay, it's kind of messy. So work with me here. But once you sort of reach a point of physical maturity, all right, where you're you're done growing, you are who you are. Okay, Um, and let's just let's say that that's like a positive and natural progress. But at a certain point, aging, there's there's very little positive about it. Very little positive about it, uh, and in fact, what we call aging is actually just suffering the effects of the fall. It's not actually aging at all. I mean, God is God has been around. God has been around before forever. He doesn't look like we look. He doesn't. His hair isn't thinning. His eyes aren't wrinkled. He isn't getting hobbled. Age itself, that is, existence over long term, has nothing to do with what we think it does. What we are experiencing is the curse in our bodies slowly more and more taking over, you see. So that's actually what aging is. So when our bodies are raised and glorified sin is gone, so are all the effects of sin. So is the aging that we call, the, and the decay and everything else. It's all removed. It's all put away. We will, be, again, you take, you take the, the most attractive male and female who have ever existed in this fallen world. Okay, The most attractive male and female who have ever existed in this fallen world. They are still subject to the decay and fallenness of, of, this, of this realm. That is to say, the ugliest person in the new heavens and the new earth will be infinitely more beautiful and glorious than the most attractive people of this mode of existence. Does that make sense? And uh, honestly, understand me, tongue in cheek about the ugliest. You see that? And, and have no, there's not going to be anything ugly about it. Uh, but But, what you would say that the, le- the least glorious <laughs> in the heavenly realm will be infinitely more glorious than the glory of this earthly realm right? so yeah we 're talking about the removal of the curse and all its effects, and we 're and we're also talking about the full stature of the human race as God intended it. You know, Adam and Eve even in the garden don 't have the full stature of the human race as God intends it in its ultimate form. He, Adam, and Eve are children. They're to grow up into this ultimate form that, thanks be to Christ, we will all now yet inherit. So the
1: the laws of thermodynamics won't apply, I'm assuming, in the next, of
0: our well, we have no idea what laws will apply or not apply, yeah. or what'll carry over or won't carry over. But it will be an entirely new mode of existence, and and there's ways we can talk about it. In, in so we want to keep both of these trains of thought. There are ways we can talk about it in terms of continuity, okay? Overlap, continuity. It's not like we all get lobotomized, and in heaven, you know, you're glorified as a butterfly and. I'm glorified as a fly swatter or something. Like that's not that we're not talking about a lobotomization and a new creation such that there's no continuity with what came before. Rather, we're talking about continuity. It is not, it is not an entirely different planet. It is a new earth, right? It's not something entirely different than heaven, it's a new heaven that we inherit. And so um yeah, so there's continuity. It's these bodies that will be raised and glorified. It's us, as we are in our experiences, cleansed and perfected by Christ that carry on into eternity. So there's great continuity, but then there's also great discontinuity, and that's the other side of the coin. That's kind of what we've been articulating heretofore: is the great discontinuity. You know, when you arrive into heaven, um, you're not going to go up there and, I mean, first of all, let's get this out of the way. What does a soul look like? A soul looks like your body. Okay, but you're not going to get up into heaven and walk through a hall of mirrors and look and say, huh, I'm, I'm still old and <laughs> decrepit. All right, that's not going to be your experience. Uh, because, because even in, even in heaven, even in the foretaste, before the resurrection of our flesh, there's a glorification that takes place. You can see that, for example, in Revelation 7, where the people standing around the throne... Um, and, and the others described in heaven—they're never described in the terms that we describe ourselves here on earth. It's a different mode of existence, a different mode of being, and all of that even precedes the resurrection. How much more in the resurrection of the body? Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, we had a family here many years ago, probably 25 years ago, who had a uh, daughter. And Absolutely. Her body would be beautiful,
1: uh, and they just took great. They've both, both gone on by now.
0: So also. Absolutely, yeah, there, and there's so many points to draw out from that, You yeah. know, where you have birth defects or disabilities or something like that. They are temporary. Yeah. They are going to be healed permanently. Yeah. And, then, and then so too as age and decay take over us and we seem to lose more and more, the, Like one of the key things we need to have in mind is just be patient. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, the Lord gives again and better, so relax. Yeah, we all need the Lord to take away. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've kept us a couple minutes over. Thank you for, for uh, your, your participation in this session. We're on page 95. Let me take a quick look for those of you who might be interested and, and give you my best guess. Probably, probably next week and the week following will still be on this text. It's possible we'll just burn through this text next week, but uh, order your books. Uh, we'll be doing Crystal Stone first, okay, and uh, on, um, on marriage and the family life, and then we'll be doing Wolf Miller second, Has American Christianity Failed? The Lord be with you.